0: Man Yells at Everyone, and The Brave New Future of American Politics, Paying Your Supporters. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is back at the end of the week, but in his absence, we're joined by Charles C.W. Cook, Jim Garrity, and MBD, Michael Brandon Doherty. I've been told I had to get that much better, and I'm I'm trying to put (laughs) some more emphasis on it. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babbel and Moink. More on them later on. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. We read them and we're taking names. And if you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So this week, Monday, in fact, we were treated to some adversarial reporting. It appeared via Axios on Joe Biden in a feature cleverly titled Old Yeller. This piece notes the extent to which the president is prone to outbursts of verbal aggression and rage at his subordinates, and you would think that a boss who shrieks expletive-laden missives at his staff on a regular basis would be negative reporting. But, Jim, as you noted yesterday, this piece was not, in fact, all that
1: unkind to the president. No, I was about to quibble a little bit with your description of it as adversarial reporting, Uh, I think, you know, Axios did mention that this is at odds with, you know, the uh, Biden image of him as the kindly grandfather taking everybody out for ice cream on a summer day and wearing the aviators and all that kind of stuff. Look, you know, the quotes in there are uh, the sort of thing where I think if, you know, if it happened in a lot of workplaces, somebody would ask you to, you you know, step outside and calm down for a minute before you do this, you know. G D, how the f don't you know this? Don't f b s me. Get the f out of here. I think listeners know which words go in the space there. Um, that that really seems like a guy who's blowing his stack. That really se- and, and kind of you know, particularly in this you know, there, there was an attitude to in the aftermath of Me Too, which was you know, um, how many bosses are tyrants and how many bosses are rageaholics who don't need to be and who have been enabled by corporate cultures that uh, allow. People in charge to be verbally abusive to their underlings. Well, it certainly sounds like Biden is that way. So I think there were three aspects of this that jumped out at me. The first is just how generous the coverage was, uh, and that if this if Republican press—I mean, we heard about Trump throwing the ketchup against the wall and his, you know, temper and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think the coverage of this was about as soft, focus and, and supportive as possible. There's one quote in there that, you know, Biden does it because he respects his people. And if he doesn't yell at you, it means he doesn't respect you. Oh, okay, Yeah, that's that's, you know, it's just a sign of respect. Yeah, no, it's not. Ask those people if they feel respected. Um, I would point out that like those of us who've dealt with elderly parents, elderly grandparents have seen those dealing with aging and a certain state of mental deterioration have seen temperamental outbursts. This doesn't mean that it's automatically a sign that, you know, Biden is losing his marbles. Um, In fact, it was interesting. There was a former aide who wrote a book in 2012 that painted uh, Biden as this uh, really kind of, you know, similarly abusive guy, you know, back a decade ago, back when he was in the Senate, um, you know, throwing the F-bomb all around and telling people they're too dumb to know this. And how do you not know this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so maybe this is just the same old Biden. And we're just hearing about it um, here in July 2023. Um, But the other kind of like last aspect of this that I think does jump, has some significance, is that, you know, Biden is swearing everybody in on January 20th, 2021, beginning his presidency. And he says to them, quote, I'm not joking when I say this, that if you are ever working with me and I hear you treat another colleague with disrespect, talk down to someone, I promise you I will fire you on the spot, on the spot, no ifs, ands, or buts, everybody Everybody is entitled to be treated with dignity and decency that has been missing in a big way for the last four years. Well, is saying to somebody, GD, how the F don't you know this and don't effing BS me and get the F out of here, is that treating your colleagues with respect? Does that qualify as restoring decency and dignity to the White House? My suspicion is that Joe Biden talks, like as on so many other issues, Joe Biden talks a good game, uh, but in practice, he's the same old jerk he always was.
0: So, you don't I mean, Jim, you don't think that they're trying here. But this is a way to launder a negative narrative into the news cycle in under the guise of, you know, puffery. It does contribute to the cumulative impression that Biden's self- set narratives are collapsing in kind of a roundabout mm. way. and it coincides with the granddaughter news cycle, which is really spiking not because of us, not because the right is is pounding on the table. But the left is getting increasingly discomfited by Joe Biden's relationship with this uh, with his estranged. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, granddaughter, no, his granddaughter, granddaughter. Cool.
1: his granddaughter. That's that's sort of biologically. Uh, by I mean, just these are categories every, they're,
0: they're studying, which I'm just trying to work within yeah. their narratives. Whatever they happen. To no, be.
1: it's it's Biden's granddaughter. Um, no, I, I think you are correct. I don't buy that. There's some sort of movement afoot to replace Biden. Um, I mean, there may be a lot. Of, there are no doubt a lot of Democrats who'd like to see that happen. But nobody wants to take a shot at Biden. Uh, The last guy who openly uh, doubted Biden's memory and mental state and all that stuff was Julian Castro during the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. Shortly after that, he was cast into the phantom zone and never seen again. Um, So Biden, if you come at Biden and say he's gotten too old to do the job and he can't be president, there's no way he's going to be able to fulfill a second term. And you miss (laughs) at the king. If If you do not succeed it's the end of your political career. Uh, and yet everybody can kind of see this. Um, I, I just generally think that, like, if you're seeing stories like this popping up in a place like Axios, um, probably somebody was worried that these stories are going to get out there and really, you know, undermine... Like, he doesn't seem like the family man, thanks to the Hunter Biden stuff. He is trying to claim Bidenomics. I understand uh, home mortgage rates just recently hit a high, uh, a new high over the last, you know, couple decades. Um and they're they're you know bragging that in, inflation is half of what it once was. Yes, it's half of the worst it was in the past forty years. Um, and he's got he's its position for re-election is not great. Uh, if they don't you know hit the jackpot and have Trump as the nominee, they could be in real trouble here. And so I think. Maybe putting a story out like this is a attempt at putting some insurance or cushioning or being able to say that it's old news. But I think it's just one more way of demonstrating that in 2020, the country was sold an image of Joe Biden that bears no relation to reality.
0: So, Michael, I know I'm supposed to think that what if a Republican did it is primordial punditry, the preserve of troglodytes. But in this case, a Republican actually did it not that long ago. And when he did it, it was deemed verbal abuse. Poor Christian Nielsen was in the receiving end of that. But Donald Trump's temper and his conduct with his subordinates was the subject of national speculation and nationally televised hearings over the course of the January 6th investigation on multiple days. Why is this distinct? Is it distinct?
2: Um, I don't know that it's distinct. Um, I mean, what what interests me about this is that uh, it took so long for these stories to come out, like the Biden White House seemed unusually disciplined and unusually protective, whereas I'm used to sort of Clinton-Bush-Obama years where the White House just leaks like a sieve about the, the peccadillos and uh, fights and temper tantrums of any president, um, if, the, if there are any to be seen. I mean, George W. Bush and Barack Obama were generally cool under the collar, but you see, you know, always hear about Al Gore slapping Bill Clinton around, telling him to get to get himself together. We heard nothing about Biden like this um, until now. And now all of a sudden the floodgates seem to be open for liberals to criticize Joe Biden. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's temporary. I don't know if it's it's, uh, you know, a few raindrops before the deluge. Um but here we are. I, I agree with Jim. I mean, I'm much more open to to speculating very openly that temper tantrums are a sign of senility. Um, you know, I've, I've just seen that in my, in, in life, in, uh, some of the elderly people that have been in my life that, uh, you know, literally the personality begins to flip, uh, as the faculties go, the gentle people become harsh and nasty and nasty people become softened and chastened uh as the faculties go um I, I i very much worry about uh this white house i i just don't know how they're going to be able to keep him campaigning for uh you know almost two years without covid as an excuse to keep him inside and indoors i mean are Are they going to do like a kind of virtual campaign, like a a fireside chat style? It's just broadcasts. Um, because his, the events he's going to in the last couple weeks, especially he's not doing well. I mean, he's, he's, he's making errors. Like he walked in front of the King at, uh, in a proceeding line in which he would should have been walking alongside of him or at least behind him. Um, you know, maybe that was a 4th of July level insult or a little Irish nationalist in inside of him, but it was uh, totally against protocol and a, a younger man wouldn't have made that mistake.
0: So Charlie, if we assume, which seems to be the consensus here, that the White House leaked this to get out in front of the notion that this is a product of creeping dementia, early onset senility, they've they've sort of risked Inviting two bad narratives here, either the senility, the notion that he just can't control himself anymore, or what they settled on, which is that this is deliberate hazing. And I'm old enough to remember when hazing was a bad concept that we were supposed to anathematize and um, look down upon and stigmatize. And now they're they're reduced to saying, well, this is just what workplaces are like, even in the White House, right? Right. So, Charlie, is this best practice? And if so, what are the four-letter words that Rich rains down on you on a regular
3: basis? (laughs) It's not best practice, no, and I don't think it's troglodytic at all to say that if this were a Republican president or a corporate CEO, then it would be conceived very differently. My main takeaway from this was that if you, as a voter or as a political commentator, or just as a citizen who has an interest in politics, we're not already aware that this is who Joe Biden is, then you're a low-information voter. This story may well have been leaked by the White House to get ahead of it. It may well be the product of an increasingly jittery press corps that worries that Biden is not up to it, but that the Democrats will be saddled with him as their nominee nevertheless. Perhaps aliens sent it into the New York Times and they forwarded it to Axios. But it doesn't really matter. This is who Joe Biden is. The fact that the Republican candidate, apparently the perpetual Republican candidate, Donald Trump, is also a terrible person does not change the fact. But since he first arrived on the scene nearly 50 years ago, Joe Biden has been a pathological liar, a blowhard, and a bully. This is what he's like. It's not just staff. In 1988, he did this to a voter in New Hampshire. He shouted at the guy, said, I will compare my IQ to yours. I'm more intelligent than you. And then he told a long series of lies. He's always been like this. Now, I dare say that it's getting worse as his frustrations mount, as he leans in to his senility, perhaps dementia. But Joe Biden is not anything like the image that was cultivated for him in 2020. And if you believed that image, or if you repeated it uncritically, you're a fool. I read this and I thought, well, yes. What was more interesting to me was why it was being admitted now by certain people not the facts of the case the facts of the case have been evident for a long time and if the republican party were not glued to somebody who shares almost all of the same character flaws many of which are worse in scope they would have an opening here to point to joe biden And say, is that really the guy you want to be president of the United States?
0: All right. With that, let's take a minute and hear from our first advertiser today, Moink. Did you know that 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese and their hogs are given something called rectopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China. Yet you find it in your grocery store aisle every day. There's a better way. And I'd like to tell you about it. It's called Moink. That's moo plus oink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb pasture pork and chicken and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste, and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent, too. You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and much more. Plus, you can cancel at any time. Keep American farming going strong by signing up at moinkbox.com editors right now. And listeners of this show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but it's for a limited time, spelled m o i n k box dot com slash editors. That's moinkbox.com dot com slash editors. Uh, this is a subject that came up this week, and nobody saw it coming. Um, but perhaps we should have given our dystopian present. After making a big splash in the spring with his uh, presidential campaign announcement, we hadn't heard a lot from Vivek Ramaswamy this summer. Uh, But Vivek Ramaswamy has aimed to fix that. And on Monday, he announced that he was transforming his campaign into something resembling a multi-level marketing scheme. Uh, His campaign announced that they will make uh, some small-dollar donors who apply independent contractors who will function basically as bundlers. Um, Bundlers usually uh, corral high-dollar donors or at least significant-dollar donors who can meet the max donation for a campaign uh, in a general and a primary election. And they gather all this money together, and they have access to perks for the campaign, and they even can take a cut. So he's democratizing this. Vivek Ramaswamy says you'll get a 10% cut of the donations you raise for the Vivek campaign uh, from your friends and your network. And um, you, too, can be a, a bundler. They equate this to the gig economy. But the gig economy, economy rather leverages property, while multi-level marketing leverages relationships. And if you hear the candidate talk about this proposition, it's hard to avoid the obvious. I'm going to quote from him here in his announcement video. Quote, I want to help you do it. Build the skills needed to help you sell effectively. And believe me, if you can sell a politician's vision, you can sell anything in this country. We're going to help you be successful And the first wave of people who do it are likely to be the most successful. The guy sounds like a Nixium representative. Ramaswamy isn't alone. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is struggling to attract small donors, so he's been offering $1 American flags just to get names on paper. And now he's promising a $20 gift card to all who give $1 donations. So it's a fantastic return on investment, all for the low, low price of putting your name on Doug Burgum's list. This is obviously a response to the RNC's rules, which require candidates to get at least 40,000 small-dollar donors to qualify for the first debate stage and an increasing number of small-dollar donors for every successive debate stage. So you could say that this is a creative response to strange circumstances created by the RNC, but it feels to me like the horrible commodification of our politics and just the, the devolution of uh, politics from a contest of ideas into a competition to see who best remunerates their supporters. I mean, Charlie, if, if you're like me, would you say that this is the inevitable trajectory on which American politics has been set for a decade and are therefore as depressed as I am? Or am I, am I overreading this?
3: Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of Vivek, so this is really <laughs> disappointing to hear. And out of character with how he's conducted himself in the rest of the campaign... these aren't serious people, this is a problem that has been caused by the transmutation of our primary system from a means by which we choose the best or at least the most popular candidate to run for president into a means by which people who know they are not going to be chosen try to increase their visibility and desirability and wealth in other areas or in the case of Doug Burgum, engage in a vanity project. Why are they doing this? They're doing this because they have sat down with their advisors and asked, why am I not gaining the traction that I want? How do I break through? Well, we need small dollar donors. That's the sign. That's the symptom. And then, stupidly, they've said, how do we get them? And no answer is apparently too absurd. Like I have said before that I don't know whether Donald Trump is going to be unseated. But if he is unseated, he's likely to be unseated by Ron DeSantis. Why does Ron DeSantis have lots of donors? Because he's seen as a viable prospect. You can't reverse engineer that. You can't find a peculiar Rube Goldberg way of getting lots of small dollar donors and then say, aha, now I'm viable. No, it has to happen naturally, or as naturally as it can. These are preposterous schemes. And yes, there is also an element, as you implied, of sending money to people to effectively bribe them, which is always the downside of democracy and has been from the beginning. Not in the context of primaries, but that is one of the things that the founders were the most worried about with democracy, that you would end up essentially with a government that said, vote for me and I'll send you money. Well, at least in Doug Burgum's case, he seems to be sending his own money out. But this isn't politics. This doesn't help advance conservatism. This doesn't help restore the Republican Party to power. This doesn't help get rid of Trump. This doesn't advance anything that we spend our days talking about. This is the logical end point of a primary system that has essentially been hacked at least at the lower levels, by people who know full well they're never going to be the nominee, but who are using it for other means.
0: So, Jim, is this the wave of the future, or will there be a stigma to this? It feels like it could backfire. It's the kind of rebranding that communicates the undesirability of the product and signals its inevitable collapse. Or will people respond to financial incentives as they often do? I mean, it's not like Vivek needs the small dollars at this point. He's, his campaign says he's qualified for the first debate stage, so he might need them later on. They seem to be making a calculation that says, you know, look, people,
1: people like money, and they'll participate in something where they can make easy money. There's some small part of me that actually doesn't mind this and that says, look, you know, people have something of value which is either their primary vote and they you know, aren't willing to give it to a Vivek Ramaswamy type character or Doug Burgum or any of these other, you know, less than one, you know, let's say 5% or less, you know, long shot or no hope or candidates. candidates. Um, but being a donor is one of the ways they can get on a debate stage. And these folks are all convinced that once the country sees Doug Burgum on that debate stage, This whole race is going to change completely. All of a sudden, you're going to see vast swaths of Trump and DeSantis supporters say, Wait a second. I didn't know the governor of North Dakota's in this race. All right, that's changed. Well, now that I've seen him. It's great. I almost I also uh almost admire the directness of the Doug Burgum approach, which is basically to get out his checkbook, go to the RNC. All right, who do I have to pay to get on the debate stage? How do I have to do this? What do you just tell me how to do it and I will figure out a way to take my massive fortune and turn it into a spot on the debate stage. Um the you know, the RNC even if they're hand- going about this in a you know heavy-handed or clumsy way, wants to avoid a circumstance like in 2016, where we had about 10 people on stage in the primetime debate, and then we had the, you know, not ready for primetime players in the 6 p.m. slot that nobody really watched, and there was no way to break out of that. We, you know, communicate a very hard truth for aspiring presidents. If you want to run for president, it really helps if a lot of people have heard of you. I think it was Liz Mayer who pointed out that Donald Trump had something like 99% name recognition when he chose to run in 2016. Hillary Clinton had something like 99 to 100% name recognition. Now, maybe you don't have to have it up there, but you got to get it at minimum above 50, right? You, you, By the time you choose to run for president of the United States, you should have done things. You should have done things that are significant enough that people ideally outside of your home state have said, hey, Hey, look what this governor's doing. Or, oh, look what this senator's doing. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, well, you know, they've, they've, they've done something kind of, they've made the country a better place. It's not enough to just show up there on Fox News and say, oh, I believe in a secure border and give us the same old blather that every other candidate is going to offer. So I am compl- I would love to see a uh, industrial farm combine thresher run through this field and eliminate everybody who's, you know, in the low single digits. And this includes some candidates I really like. Uh, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are not setting the world on fire. It'd be a, I'd be happier if they were, but it, they, they aren't. And it's you know we'll say, yes, it's early. But they've been in the race for several months now, and there's very little sign that they're catching fire. There's very little sign that anybody's catching fire. That big chunk of that Donald Trump support does not appear interested in looking at any other options. That could change. Uh, maybe we'll see something in the August debate, depending on how many people are on stage. And Trump may not participate in that August debate. But it right now... A lot of these guys look and sound like they're wasting everybody's time. And I've been, you know, fuming about the, you know, the second time of Huckabee, the second time of Santorum, George Pataki, and, of course, the whirling dervish of raw political charisma that is Jim Gilmore for for a long time now. People are tired of me telling these anecdotes. But it's just a sign that, like, the presidency is not a a, glorified – running a presidential campaign is not a glorified book tour. It's not an audition for a spot on Fox News. It's not, you know, it's not a way to become famous. It's not supposed to be that. Or we could have a separate one. We could have a celebrity in chief type contest. Let's leave the presidential nominating process for people who actually want to be president and who actually have a decent shot at becoming them. So,
0: Michael, Charlie already said that this feels like a proto-democratic phenomenon, like an early 19th century ward healer strategy to get out the vote on a very small scale. Uh, Or maybe if you're a fan of Marxian notions of historical inevitability, it's late stage capitalism. But whatever it is, this is not the conduct of a mature democracy with a civically minded uh, group of voters who are invested in the future of the republic. Am I making too much out of
2: this? I don't. I, you know, I don't know. I have two minds about it. Uh, to be honest, um, you know, it, do we want to reserve perks uh, the the perks of uh, ambitious fundraisers for presidential campaigns to just elite bundlers who become diplomats or whose spouses become diplomats? I mean, I think there was a report last year in the Washington Post that. A third of Biden's ambassador nominees were campaign bundlers. Um, is that is that better than the than Vivek Ramaswamy's little ten percent commission? I'm not sure, right? I mean, I, like I find it a little bit more disgusting that you know we basically have we've turned the idea of being an ambassador uh, into a vanity project uh, in the vast majority of cases, and we just let the State Department run on its own exhausted fumes um, so that we can, we can give campaign donors something to do and align on their resume that, Oh, I was in ambassador to Togo or, or um, Malta or something. Um, so that's thoughtful. So- and
0: I spent a lot of time thinking and researching this um, yesterday. And there were some practical considerations that a campaign has to consider. Like bundlers was a big scandal in 2008, not a scandal, but in 2008 when B- Barack Obama utilized this to great effect. And the bigger your bundler pool, the more headaches your campaign has
1: because well, you're generating
0: uh, all this all this uh, revenue that you have to account for, you have to vet, and sometimes you have to turn it back because it comes from the wrong sources, and sometimes it can be a scandal because it comes from a foreign source or what have you. So you can be more taxing for the campaign than it's worth in practical terms. As a class leveler, I mean, I, I understand that. Notion, and I'm sympathetic to it, but what this amounts to is just paying people to support you. It's not
2: real yeah. high-minded principle here. But the other thing is the you know we, I think you compared it a little bit to a multi-level marketing campaign uh, when you introduce the topic, and that's the other reason why I'm not, I'm not like super worried about it because there's a kind of futility in it. You know, like if you asked me if you if you upped the reward to fifty percent, you know. I would have no idea where to find a Vivek Ramaswamy donor, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, like, where would I find this guy that's going to give money to Vivek Ramaswamy, ha, you know, 10% of which is going to be kicked back to me. I have no idea where to even begin. So, like, I, I just don't know that this project is going to get, take off at all. Uh, you know, it might have if it were, you know, if it were connected to idealism, but it's not, and it's a sign that these people don't have ideals, right? Like there used to be, you know, uh, over a decade ago, you know, the Ron Paul campaign got pressed because it had these money bombs, right, which were donors realizing, small dollar donors realizing, hey, if we coordinate our efforts on a single day, we can drive press coverage to our candidate. And it was like an idealistic movement of these small dollar donors themselves and their initiative that was, that uh, was, you know, an innovation of the internet era uh, and genuinely bottom up and sort of like, um, you know, get clean for gene style idea of like, okay, the the supporters themselves are going to self organize for their, for their man, for their champion. You know, this, like what Ramaswamy is doing and what Bergam is doing just seems like, you know, what you do in the absence of that kind of passion. And so I don't think it's going to amount to much in the end.
0: All right. So I asked Jim, but I don't think I got an answer. So I'm going to pose it to everybody as an exit question. This becomes best practice moving forward, or it's seen as
2: a little gauche and something you should avoid. Michael. I think it's seen as a little gauche. And something you avoid. And I think it'll be because, you know, the leading candidates, Donald Trump and and Ron DeSantis, don't have to resort to this. Jim.
1: Uh, A short-lived experiment that never really catches fire because it just won't get enough of a reaction to be worthwhile. I would point out that Vivek Ramaswamy claims to be a billionaire and Forbes estimated his net worth at 600-some million. So a lot of people are like, why am I giving money to a billionaire?
3: Hmm. Charlie. I think it's gauche, and it looks weak, and that's why it will die out. I agree, gauche
0: will die out, but we'll have a, we'll be humiliated sufficiently in the interim. Um, we'll take that opportunity to talk to you about our second advertiser of the day, Babble. The best way to learn a language is through immersion, living where the language is spoken natively and using it every day. But that's not possible for everyone, so what's the second best way to learn a language? The answer is Babbel, because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. One in five Americans have learn a new language on their bucket list, and if that's you, you can check it off this summer with Babbel. Have travel plans this summer? Learn to speak like a local with Babbel. Science says our ability to learn new languages peaks when we're children, but since you can't go back to being a six-year-old, we've got the next best thing. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are little more than games, Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning new languages are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com editors. Get 55% off at babbel.com editors, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com editors. Rules and restrictions may apply. Um, Moving on to foreign policy, which is something I try to inject into this podcast on as regular a basis as possible, whether everybody likes it or not. Uh, The Biden administration confirmed this week that they're sending, I'm sorry, last week, that they're sending uh, Ukraine artillery shells that distribute cluster munitions. They're going to be going to the front lines of Ukraine at some point. The time of arrival can uh, depart dramatically from the announcement of uh, things like this. But these uh, munitions are designed to distribute bomblets over about a football field-sized area. They are uh, hated by the activist class, um, by many human rights activists, because those munitions also dispersed unexploded ordnance that can uh, live in the the fields for years and present a threat to civilians well into the future, long after a conflict is over. Um, The Pentagon says that the failure rate of these munitions is roughly 2 to 3%, but the New York Times says it's more like 14%. Nevertheless, still better than Russia's 30 to 40% fail rate, and Moscow has used these weapons, continues to use these weapons on the front line and in civilian areas, and you can go check that out yourself. We have verified footage. It's been broadcast on uh, American media outlets. Go take a look. Um, the U.S. is not party to this international treaty banning these weapons, nor is Russia or Ukraine. But the Biden White House probably wouldn't have welcomed the moral opprobrium they're going to get from quarters of international opinion to which Democrats are really sensitive unless they were very concerned about the trajectory of the counteroffensive. And they probably wouldn't have had to take the step at all if they'd have consented to sending fixed-wing aircraft to Ukraine earlier than they appear to be doing so, which would have helped Ukraine secure air superiority and made the slog through Russia's initial defenses a little bit uh, smoother. Um, the Biden administration's thinking on this is pretty inscrutable, Michael, what do you make of this decision and the Biden administration's uh, approach to this conflict more broadly? And what does this say about their approach to this conflict?
2: <sighs> um, there's a lot of questions there. Uh, i don't I don't like the idea. I don't like the idea of these weapons. I mean, call me. A piece, Nick, but like <laughs> you know, there's a tradition of moral opprobrium on weapons that are are indiscriminate that goes all the way back to the Lateran Council and Pope Innocent II trying to get crossbows <laughs> limited, uh, at least in wars between Christians. Uh, and I I do think there are are um, weapons that are so indiscriminate and awful that they should never be used, like you know, mustard gas or, uh, and I'm glad that we have international treaties that ban these things, even if a lot of my, uh, conservative friends think it's, uh, namby pamby to, to say so. Um, uh, these are on the edge. Uh, I, 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 you know, there's a case to be made that they can clear trenches better than other weapons, but, um, <laughs> there is just an odd thing about the Biden administration where, you know, the Biden administration ruled out cluster bombs earlier in the conflict, and now they're using them. And I don't know why this doesn't speak to our credibility. I mean, we, we talk about red lines, and we, we say we're going to lose credibility if we don't stand up for our red lines. But then we draw our own red lines and cross them. And no one seems especially concerned about the credibility of the American government, at least when it's in the direction of killing more people. But um, well, what red lines have I, we drawn in this particular regard? Well, I think we drew the, we, we said we weren't going to send them uh, over a year ago. Now we're saying, okay, yes, we are going to send them after all.
0: Well, um, in that sense, it's only one of many red lines that were crossed: uh, long-range uh, rocketry, uh, uh, HIMARS, uh, drones. Although th- I think in
2: the although I think in the initial <laughs> red line on this one was the only one that was you know, where ethical reasons were at least hinted at. And, you know, the others ones, it was strategic
3: or, um, you know. Yeah, but it still matters. I'm with you, Michael, on this. Don't draw those lines if you're not going to stick to them. Because then when I hear Joe Biden or people who are much more gung-ho about this than I am say, don't worry, we're not going to send American soldiers... I think, until when? Now, I know what you're going to say, Noah. You're going to say that there is no reason for us to send American soldiers, and I'm not saying you're wrong. But the point is, if we keep blowing past all of the gates that we've put in place that are issued as reassurances, always, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Then we do that. Why should anyone believe that it's not going to escalate to the point at which it would be unacceptable? I think that's a problem. And and
2: I I don't know that these are going to um change the battlefield conditions sufficiently i mean I, I i just don't know um it's th- seems theoretical at this point and um you know w- we seem to be in a kind of information blackout about the course of this counteroffensive it's supposedly has started now in the summer uh but I, you know there hasn't been much progress on the on the battlefield but i'm told you know, some sources will say that we're the Ukrainians are working on a more longer-term plan to disrupt Russian supply chains. Uh, I have no idea. I just, but I do know that there is a cost to using these weapons. Uh, it's in the long term, and you know, if Ukraine, the, the the problem is, of course, like Ukraine is the one bearing the risks, right? Because we're assuming these are going to be used on Ukrainian. Ukrainian territory, or at least pre-2012, 2022 Ukrainian territory. Um, but, you know, this is a desperate government and, you know, there's, I don't know, there's real questions too about, you know, are you, are you using these weapons and also poisoning the ground in a sense that ground that you might give up in the at a negotiating table? I don't know uh i find it i find it gross um but war i mean war is hell i don't begrudge that ukrainians want to use these weapons but that doesn't mean we have to give them so jim i want to get you in here because i i am sensitive to the arguments
0: of the critics of this move and but i'm go- and i'm going to elide the ideological distinctions between them here speaking generally and broadly um, but there are contradictions in their posture that I find frustrating to maneuver around, and frankly, I think my maneuvering around them is the whole point. They object to the distribution of some of these weapons on narrative grounds. Now we're no better than the Russians, or something along those lines. But then they insist that we dispense with notions of morality and narrative grounds when describing U.S. interests in Eastern Europe threatened by Moscow. Those have to be concrete and material. They decry America's willingness to do the hard, sometimes bloody work reserved for prima pares of the Atlantic Alliance, the stuff that I support. Sometimes America has to drop a Moab because no one else will do it, but also oppose the distribution of alternative platforms like fixed-wing aircraft, like long-range weapons, etc. They call this an escalation without making note of the parallel response to Russia's use of these weapons, which I think renders it more reciprocity than escalation. These are the arguments that I think can be marshaled in support of this decision. The Biden administration isn't really making these arguments. They're not really making any arguments around these around what they're doing. They just sort of announced it and retreated into
1: the shadows. What is your take? I was going to say, thank you for the question and not the monologue.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to get the monologue in and I was using you as That's a platform right. so, to do it. Yeah.
1: So I think like one of the more glaring examples in which you could say, hey, this is a contradiction in terms. This is a reversal. Samantha Power back in 2017, Trump has taken uh, is now in the White House, And Trump walks away from a Bush administration 2008 commitment to phase out cluster munitions with unacceptable dud rates. We have the world's most advanced military, and we are better than this. Eh, Apparently, we're not better than this. (laughs) Apparently, we were okay with sending, uh, you know, munitions with a more than 1% dud rate to the Ukrainians. Um, Noah, when when I first heard this news, actually, you were one of the people I wanted to hear from because I think I'm in, you know generally the same ballpark of uh, not really liking this move, not loving it. If it's something you got to do, I guess it's something you got to do. I think it does point to a um, serious lack of other munitions that the Ukrainians have that, and we that's have the to question. supply them. I, I feel like
2: that's the question, Jim. It's like, are we doing this because we're running out of other stuff and this just happens to be on the shelf and it's not something we particularly Want to keep on our shelf because we think in the future, well, we'll be using more precision weapons or more precision drones. But, well, we haven't decommissioned these weapons. So, OK, let's just get this is what we have. Yeah, I mean, you we know, go again it, to, is, ha- <clears throat> to have
1: to uh, have former you know, Obama administration officials speaking badly of these weapons a couple years ago and now turning around and saying, yeah, Ukraine really needs them. Better put them out there. Uh, one that is a contradiction, and two, I think my attitude is: Look, if you said to me, Get- sending Ukraine these weapons means they're going to win the war, okay, no problem. That that you know, then the cost in moral reputation or public discourse. or rep- I mean, remember, a bunch of our allies have banned these weapons. They've decided that they are morally akin to chemical weapons or things like that that are just simply not. To be used in the modern battlefield, even if they provide some sort of tactical or strategic advantage. And I don't think that the British or the French or our other European allies are a bunch of wimps and wusses who don't know how to fight war. They've just looked at these weapons and said, you know what, there's just too much risk to civilians to make them worthwhile after the battle has ended. The Ukrainians have looked at this and said, no, we definitely need these sorts of things. We will accept that risk. We're dealing with, we're getting them, we've we fired the ones we have and we're out of them now. Uh, we're dealing with Russian stuff the Russians have a 30 to 40 percent failure rate on their weapons so we're going to be dealing with unexplored exploited ordnance after this war is done one way or the other right So we think the advantage is worth it. All right, my fear is that we end up in a situation in which it doesn't win the war for Ukraine and in that case we've sacrificed a certain amount of our moral authority and for what to make a bloody war even muddier uh, bloodier um, we put ourselves in a situation where I don't I know people complain about slippery slopes and not every small step leads to some much worse outcome down the road, but this feels like losing our footing on the side of a hill Uh, and it's starting to rain, Uh, that this is a case of us making a moral compromise that we did not have in mind when this conflict began And yes, this is the context of a generally incoherent Biden administration policy in which they hem and haw and end up sending Ukraine weapons, you know, six months after they request them. In the meantime, lots of Ukrainians have died. I am completely there for whacking around Biden's decision making on this like a pinata uh, overall in terms of supplying weapons to the Ukrainians. On this one, I wonder if, you know, six months from now or a year from now, we're going to look at this and say, huh, we sent a pretty controversial weapon to the Ukrainians and it did not make the difference we were hoping it would. Well, in, can, the, in
0: practical can, terms, Jim, the, the opposition to this is not all that distinct from an opposition to landmines. Unexploded ordnance lasts forever, really hard to kill, blows up civilians years later. But we would not, we're not signatory to any bans on landmines because they're absolutely necessary to fortify defensive positions
1: like, for example, the DMZ in Korea. As I understand, that's pretty much the spot where they're needed. And one of the complaints is that you get rains, you get floods, and eventually the landmines end up in places you... Didn't want to put them. If there was a way to work around that on the DMZ issue, maybe the U.S. would be. A, it'd be easier for the U.S. to sign on on a ban on landmines. So I, I don't think the people who want a ban on landmines are pro North Korean or don't care about the fate of South Korea or something like that. They see no, it's a weapon. purely kill practical, one, right? Wait, it's fairly practical on the part of the supporters, the FOs?
0: Yeah, in this part of the supporters, and why the United States is not signatory to that treaty or have it, or, or the you know the international criminal court, for example, because we do most of the fighting. A lot of this is a problem of being the the hyperpower upon which all these allies rely, and say, well, we get the we get the the luxury of having a, a moral stance here because we're the backstop here. We're supported on the back end
1: by the United mm. States, which doesn't subscribe to any of these <laughs> high mines. Right. The Whoa. difference Whoa. is that the landmines right now are lined up in the DMZ or on our side of the DMZ between North and South Korea. The cluster munitions were sitting on shelves, weren't being used by anywhere. And they, as long as they're there, there's no risk of some civilian walking along or some farmer plowing his field and blowing himself up. People still blow up. Uh, people run into unexploded ordnance in Europe. You know, here we are, you know, uh, two generations later. I don't think these risks are unreasonable. And if the Ukrainians say, okay, we're willing to live with this. Okay, the Ukrainians are you know, pretty you – know, that seems like an indication of the Ukrainians being in a pretty desperate situation. Maybe. And again, if it works, great. My fear is that we're going to be in a situation six months from now where we've made that moral compromise and the circumstances of the battlefield aren't that different. Before all right. we can move I, – can, can I ask Noah a question? Sure. So, so one thing is just as premise. I think one
2: thing we probably all would all agree on – in, in one way, is we want to see the U.S. invest more in precision weapons jet production generally and and not be constrained by what already feels like muni- serious munitions constraints that the war is creating for us, even though it's not a war we're fighting. Um, but I'm curious, like, I'm curious, Noah, just speculating what... Do you think the Biden administration just never thought we'd be in this position? That they thought perhaps by this point, after this length of war, the Ukrainians would be, you know, perhaps in a position where they're fighting, you know, guerrilla tactics rather than fielding uh, regular armed forces. And, you know, we they'd be dealing essentially with, you know, an occupied portion of Ukraine that was still, you know, facing an insurgency natively, but not a regular army that could demand and ask for serious weaponry. I mean, we don't have like to speculate this. on
0: that. We know that for sure. The New York Times reports early before the invasion, and I think January or December of 21 and, or January 22, where they were reporting that the Pentagon was preparing to support an insurgency from an inside and occupied Ukraine, open up the arms stores, and allow everybody to just go completely nuts, which was its own uh, set of Uh, problems for the future, but they would have funded and supported an insurgency with the understanding that Ukraine would fall within a matter of weeks. Everything else has been improvisatory ever since.
2: Yeah, see, I didn't expect the government, I expected something like an occupied territory and insurgency. I didn't expect the government in Kiev to fall just because it seemed to me that Edward Lukwak was right that there was just not enough Russian troops to occupy the entirety of Ukraine. It's just too large um well occupy is go, one thing but knock out the government decapitate the government, out, it, that's not possible. something i thought was
0: impossible until Hostomel didn't fall
2: right well it was possible they could knock out the elected government but i didn't think they would you know trying to occupy Lviv or something like that would have been uh you know like swallowing the porcupine um they're already having difficulty with the territory they have um which is far less hostile than what you'd get as you move west. Um, so any anyway, I was just curious if, if um, you know, we just never planned to be in something this long where you would have, uh, you know, a formal command structure and, I think a military capable of deploying heavy weaponry like this. I think the one thing you can say for sure is that the Biden administration has been
0: improvising throughout all of this, given the way it's contradicted itself throughout it. But we're running really long. And I wanted to get one last quick question in here for Charlie and then everybody, if they want to opine on this, because I think it's the most important one, which is the effect this decision will have on domestic politics. And Charlie, I want you to put your finger on the pulse of the Republican Party and try to divine what the reaction will be here. If I was, if this was two thousand three, two thousand four, you can anticipate the Western European response would be tisk tisk tisk, and Democrats would be very res- sensitive to that. Republicans would be the uh, the Daddy Party, the masculine macho party, and say, "Man up! This is war. This ain't this is this ain't beanbag." But that's not the Republican Party that we have today. And the political incentives are to do something very different. Well, so is that where we're going to see? A departure true. from the GOP we grew One that's very discomfited by this?
3: Those are our wars, not wars that we're funding. Does make it a little bit different. I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on our domestic politics. But I think it will contribute to the nervousness you've seen on the right about escalation. And I think in some sense that is fair. Although I am more in favor of funding Ukraine than many, I think it will highlight once again how hilarious it is to watch progressives go all in for cluster bombs. But I don't think that this is going to break out of fora such as this one in any sense other than to contribute to already existing fault lines. Anybody else
2: disagree? Um, I don't know if this this will do it. I mean it's gonna be there is a a rump of Republicans in the in the house who are skeptical and and becoming more skeptical of this. I mean, I think the political valence has changed a lot since 2003 and not just in America uh when it comes to NATO I mean uh, the German greens 20 years ago were anti-NATO now they're the one of the most. Pro-Ukraine, pro-Hawk, Hawk parties in Europe, and you know, there's just been a general shift where s- formerly left-wing parties that oppose NATO are now very enthusiastic about it, and formerly right-wing parties that used to be enthusiastic about NATO uh, are no longer that. Uh, that's it's a tectonic shift that you see across the entire European continent. With some, you know, with with exceptions regionally, right? I mean, you see, uh, you know, Poland is totally united, basically. Um, But in Germany, it's the right-wing parties that are skeptical of NATO and the left-wing parties that are are pro-NATO.
1: No, I just want to point out that the Republicans on the House and Senate uh, Armed Services Committees wrote a letter to Biden saying you should be sending them cluster munitions back in like March. Uh, so congressional Republicans who deal with military issues are all for this. I do think this is going to, you know, it's not going to be a significant factor in democratic support for the war, but I think you'll feel a tremor in the force. I think you'll feel a couple of folks on the left getting a little uncomfortable in the fact that we're now, you know, unreservedly sending cluster munitions to be used in a foreign war.
0: All right. Well, let's move on from that to something a little different. Jim, speaking of, uh, wars of aggression and uh, you know, righteous causes, you uh, have a casus belly that you're litigating with JetBlue.
1: Yeah, so uh, right around the 4th of July, I got together with a bunch of friends, and one of my friends offered this horror story of trying to fly from Houston to Boston, two very big cities. Uh, and I don't remember which airline it was. It may have been JetBlue, it may not have been. But it's the sort of thing, got to the airport at like God, 9 or 10 in the morning And, you know, one delay after another, some weather, you know, one thing after another. Finally, they stay at the airport the entire day and finally the flight gets canceled well into the evening. So, spends the whole day at the airport and never gets there. Like, oh my goodness, what a terrible story. Well, my older teenager uh, was participating in a summer program at one of the universities up in the Boston area. Had to fly to Boston. We drop off our little baby, who's now, you know, a teenager, uh, off at Reagan National Airport on... Uh, right between 9 and 10 in the morning, on Sunday morning. We knew there was a report of weather and, you know, big storms coming through. We figured sooner or later our child would get to Boston. Did not happen. JetBlue said, oh, we can't take off because of the weather. Up oh, we're going to have another delay. Apparently got off to the runway twice, then had to return back to the gate. Then there's a question of they had to fuel up more because they were going to try to fly around the storm and it was going to go longer. Then after that, they said, oh, no, our, our crew has now done the eight hours. we got to remove this crew. we got to wait for another crew to fly in. The flight... Eventually, closer on 9 or 10, they said, ah, the flight's canceled. So another entire day spent at the airport. Look, airlines, I know you can't control the weather. I remember a woman at an airport in uh, Palm Springs upon being told that the flight that was supposed to take us uh, to San Francisco hadn't arrived because of fog in San Francisco. And for obvious reasons, they don't want planes to take off or land in fog. She said, yes, but I'm an Emerald Star Rewards Program member. I remember thinking, yes, but that doesn't control the weather. You could wave your Emerald Star Awards car, card as much at the storms all you want. They're not going to go away. But when they can't, you know, like just give, us, just give us some sense of whether it's likely to be canceled. If it's canceled, we could arrange other things. My child went off to uh, Boston on the train at 6 a.m. yesterday. Got there, everything's fine. It all worked out. But the entire day at the airport is a terrible way to spend your time. And I just like the airline, just level with us. Just let us know. And if you're not going to be able to take off today, tell us so we can start making other plans.
0: That's an innovation that... Would be lovely if everybody adopted. Uh, Michael, you've been reading a uh, fascinating new book by Mary Harrington.
2: Yes, uh, Mary Harrington is this commentator who's emerged from the eclectic site Unheard uh, out of out of the UK, and she is, her book is called Feminism Against Progress, and her, her basic thesis is that feminism has been captured by white collar women who use it to advance their own economic interests under the pretense that these represent the interests of all women. Uh, but that they're, uh, pursuing an agenda, which is, uh, 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 you know, quixotic and perhaps doomed attempt to liberate people from natural limits imposed by nature itself or embodied sex differences that are important to everyone else. Um, and it's a fascinating book. She has, uh, you know, she's coming to t- traditional conclusions from a very modern starting point, and um, but there's also just some interesting wrinkles to her thought. I think she's she's worried that progress itself is running aground, and that we're going to need men. Uh, Men of an Older Stripe, to create a new world order. (laughs) And um, so, anyway, it's a fascinating, very stimulating book, uh, and it will provoke you. Charlie, you're watching a new show.
3: I am. In fact, I have watched it because I flew at the moment, and therefore I have been in bed. It's called Jury Duty. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a... Well, the conceit... Is that it is a real jury trial? At least that's what the star of it, an unaware but very nice man called Ronald believes. As it happens, everyone in the documentary they're filming, other than Ronald, is an actor and they torture him bit by bit throughout this. And he never cracks. He is a really great example of an American. It's side-splittingly funny, but it also should restore your faith in humanity. If Americans, drawn at random, are like Ronald, then we have a bright future ahead of us. That sounds
0: good, and I'm going to add that one to my list. I'm going to give listeners an update on the, the little shack roof that I was doing a couple of weeks ago, said I was committing myself to this. I'm not. I'm backing out of this thing. I have neither the time nor the wherewithal, and most especially, the soft, soft money-counting hands that just can't do this kind of labor, and uh, I'm going to pay a guy to do it. So there's your update. So much for that project. But meanwhile, it's time for Editor's Picks. Jim, what do you got?
1: A lot of strong options this week, but I'm going to go with Jeff Blahar's. Joe Biden can look past Hunter's sordid life. He doesn't have to enable it. Uh, We mentioned over the past weekend, uh, Maureen Dowd wrote about the president's granddaughter, and, you know, Hunter Biden's effective abandonment and the Biden insistence that he has six grandchildren, not seven. Uh, kind of appalling behavior, entirely separate from what you think of Joe Biden's politics. It's also wildly bizarre for a guy whose whole brand is, ah, family comes first, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Jeff just rips it apart and links to, and mentions some comments by uh, Megan McArdle of the Washington Post. And it's just as, you know, a, a, a thorough ripping and deserved uh just just lambasting of joe biden well done jeff
2: michael uh i'm picking madeline kearns's review of this little film that could sound of freedom uh which is about child trafficking and it's about the uh activist timothy ballard who um has made it his career fighting this Uh, It's a film that in the last week embarrassed Disney by outperforming uh, the new Indiana Jones film, at least on a couple of days, even though it's in far fewer theaters and has almost no um, promotional budget. Uh, And I appreciated that uh, Maddie was able to distinguish the film from the naysayers about it, uh, who think it's just a uh, QAnon-adjacent film. Um, there might be some conspiracy theorists involved in the making of the film, but um, the film is apparently very gripping, and Madeline is not the only person to give it a positive review. Re- positive reviews have turned up in surprising places across the internet and even Variety magazine. Um, so I'm kind of just fascinated
3: by this whole phenomenon around this film. Charlie. I like Jim's piece. I think it went up this morning on Disney. Ugh took mine son of a gun
1: guys it's that good
3: good. it really is that good and this is an area that i follow very closely not just because i'm a floridian but because i'm an amusement park guy and i have to say jim the way you laid out how expensive disney has got with inflation adjusted ticket prices was jarring i think your thesis is spot on but i had not realized quite to what extent Disney has turned itself into a luxury product for upper middle class people, and I hadn't made the connection you do, which is once you do that, you're more likely to be captured by them. It's a very good piece.
0: It kind of reminds me of how Republicans got all head up about Facebook's content curation decisions, deeming it a mop- monopoly right before it went to war with its own business model. Um, so you never know what the market has in store. As a programming note, I want to welcome the wonderful writer and historian Amity Schles will be contributing regularly to National Review's Capital Matters in a corner of the website we're calling The Forgotten Book. Her latest is entitled The Curse of Bigness, and it is typically great. Go check it out. But that is it for us. You have been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without written, express permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie, thank you Michael, thank you Jim, and thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. Thanks also to our advertisers Moink and Babble, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.